Greetings, and thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode focused on Alzheimer's disease entitled Agitation and Alzheimer's Dementia, What's at Stake? My name is Dr. Pierre Terrio. I'm director of the Banner Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix and research professor of psychiatry at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. Our learning objectives for this podcast are to discuss the epidemiology of agitation in Alzheimer's dementia and its burden on patients, caregivers, and the healthcare system, and review possible pathobiology of agitation in Alzheimer's dementia. Now let's get started. Let's do some level setting for starters. So what, what do I mean by dementia? This is a syndromal term, really not a diagnosis. It's like saying cancer. It doesn't say exactly what's wrong, what lies to he- lies ahead or how to treat. The term dementia refers to progressive loss of memory and other thinking ability beyond what you see in normal aging. And it must erode the ability to function on a day in day out basis. That's a cardinal feature of, of the syndrome of dementia. Also, and this is a big point today, uh, dementia almost always results in changes in emotions and personality that we'll come back to. And eventually there's erosion of neurological function, things like uh, incontinence, swallowing problems, balance, walking problems. There are many causes of this syndrome, not just Alzheimer's, we'll come back to that in a minute. So let's say I'm evaluating or following somebody with suspected dementia. What am I following? Well, really think about a Venn diagram. I'm going to be assessing and tracking how the person is doing cognitively, functionally, uh, behaviorally, and neurologically. And that Venn diagram is going to change over time in any, every individual. If we think broadly about dementia in the United States, there may be up to as many as 8 million persons with a dementia and under that general umbrella, Alzheimer's disease alone or in combination with other conditions probably accounts for about 70% or so of all dementias, uh, followed by vascular dementia coming in at the 15 to 20% range dementia with Lewy bodies, perhaps about 5% or so, Parkinson's uh, a little less than 5%, and frontotemporal or other dementias. So we've got the umbrella term dementia, we've got the specific subtypes of dementia. Uh, The priority really is to be sure whether dementia is present or absence and then manage signs and symptoms regardless of subtype. Remember that um, risk of dementia increases with age. Remember also the sobering uh, statistic from our Alzheimer's Association pointing out that as many as half of persons with dementia in the United States never have their subtype diagnosed by a doctor. Uh, the other, the other point uh, is, is that clinical diagnoses don't always map on accurately to to pathological diagnoses. The numbers I just gave you uh, about the the relative prevalence of the dementia subtypes does hold up in a real world look at dementia numbers coming from a Medicare uh, database. Uh, um, uh, So this is sort of 
uh, academic data as well as real world data. One other cautionary note before we get back to behavioral issues is that the older the person is with a dementia, the more likely it is that she or he might have multiple pathologies contributing to the clinical picture. So about 5% of us with dementia in our 70s have multiple pathologies, uh, increasing to 20% by age 80 or so, and close to 50% by age 90. So uh, again, the point is the, the older I am with my dementia, the more likely I am to have multiple pathologies. So we need to be candid about that with our families. Okay, so let's get back to the main focus for the podcast, which is what I sometimes call the neuropsychiatric signs and symptoms in the most common form of dementia, Alzheimer's disease dementia or Alzheimer's dementia. The lifetime prevalence of neuropsychiatric manifestations uh, in a patient with dementia approaches 100%. So this is a big part of the responsibility of clinicians in evaluating and managing patients with, with dementia. The most common features are uh, 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 apathetic features, depressive and anxious features, agitated features, and uh, psychosis consisting primarily of hallucinations and or delusions. These features can come and go over time. They can co-occur within a patient. They can uh, uh, vary a lot from one patient uh, to another. Uh, so very common, very morbid, uh, um, and uh, uh, it really constitute a major part of how we spend our time and expertise in the clinic. Now let's shift the focus specifically to the term agitation. I should note that this is a, 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 an, in, a, a, an indication not yet recognized or not recognized by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. It may or may not be recognized in the future. Uh, agitation is often stage-specific, uh, as I'll come back to in a moment, uh, generally kind of in the moderate to severe stages of illness. Um, a really nice granular breakdown of what we mean by agitation was provided by Dr. Yiska Cohen-Mansfield in the past, and then pulled together by the International Psychogeriatric Association in their provisional definition of agitation in cognitive disorders. So think about it this way. So um, uh, behaviors that have to be associated with observed or inferred emotional distress in the patient, persistent or recurrent for at least two weeks, and representing a change from premorbid behavior. And what Dr. Cohen Mansfield did that I found so helpful was put this into sort of several uh, uh, domains. It, does it include verbal and or physical aggression? Uh, does it include repetitive or hyperactive behaviors? Uh, conversation, vocalization, behavior. And, and number three, does it include disinhibition or inappropriate talk or actions? And again, all of this uh, has to be occurring uh, related to the dementia and not uh, entirely accounted for by some other condition such as delirium. And again, symptoms that have to be severe, dangerous, 
and or cause disability, injury, or distress to the patient. So even more granular, so uh, what Dr. Cohen Mansfield and her team did was actually observe uh, uh, nursing home residents with, uh, with, uh, with dementia and just record what was actually seen over a period of time. So physically non-aggressive behaviors that she described included general restlessness, purposeless hyperactivity, wandering, rummaging, repetitive mannerisms, pacing, uh, dressing and undressing pointlessly. So that would be the physically non-aggressive category. In the physically aggressive category, break it down. Does it include hitting, pushing, scratching, kicking, biting, grabbing? These are the things that could be seen with physically aggressive behaviors. Back to verbal. What about the verbal non-aggressive behaviors, such as constant requests for attention, verbal bossiness, I'm quoting her paper, uh, excessive complaining, expression of what appear to be unrealistic fears, repetitive sentences, questions, verbalizations. And lastly, verbally aggressive behaviors such as screaming, cursing, temper outbursts. So that is, that's a kind of snapshot of what aggression can look like in Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, as you think about any individual patient, think about a, a concept presented by a colleague of ours, uh, Dr. Jerry Hall, a wonderful PhD nurse who did a lot of research in this area. She articulated the concept of the progressively lowered stress threshold. Uh, that is to say, if I have a dementia, the more it progresses, the more susceptible I am to uh, uh, disruptive behaviors if I have a stimulus. So presumably if I'm intact, I can handle a lot of aggravation before I show my uh, agitation. But the more impaired I am, the lower the threshold is for me to manifest dysfunctional behavior. And that, that concept is helpful for uh, uh, families and caregivers to hear. So back to uh, the epidemiology of agitation more specifically, I talked about it in general terms a couple minutes ago, uh, uh, observed at some point in up to 70% of persons with dementia. Uh, as I hinted, incidence is higher in moderate to severe stages of illness, and I'll come back to that one more time. In terms of prevalence, one month prevalence estimates, probably in the neighborhood of 30 to 50% in persons with Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, and it's important to note that all the, this can come and go, agitated behaviors, about 80% with clinically significant agitation symptoms will still have them six months later in Alzheimer's dementia. Then maybe a third or so one month prevalence in persons with Lewy body dementia, and 40% each in frontotemporal and vascular dementia. The focus today is, is Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, our, our friend and colleague, Dr. George Grossberg, some years ago did a wonderful paper that I still like to refer to, uh, looking at peak frequency of behavioral symptoms as dementia progresses. Uh, and interestingly, was one of the first to make the point that even before the dementia is diagnosed, 
you start to see behavioral changes often anxious depressive features withdrawal sometimes early uh, suspiciousness then the dementia is diagnosed you see more frank mood features then irritability and then a year or so later on average is starting when the the agitation makes start showing up aggression a bit later uh, uh, disinhibition at about that time so the real point is uh, behavioral manifestations can occur across the disease spectrum, uh, and, and, but agitation specifically tends to occur in moderate to severe stages. Now, it's important to be aware of potential predisposing factors and conditions contributing to agitation. Uh, if I have a patient with Alzheimer's dementia who's recently agitated, I'm thinking that person is delirious until proven otherwise. I have to think about adverse effects of medications, pain, fatigue, disturbed sleep. Is the environment the problem? Too hot, too cold, too noisy, too dark? Uh, is the patient hungry or thirsty? Does the patient need exercise? Uh, have the routines been disrupted? Is the patient bored, can't hear, can't see? Uh, and then, of course, is, is there something else going on, such as unrecognized depression or psychosis? So all of those things uh, have to be considered. In terms of pathobiology, there, there is a there there that's worth keeping in the back of your mind. It appears that agitated behaviors are related primarily to frontal lobe dysfunction, particularly abnormal activation of the orbitofrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex. This is supported by imaging and post-mortem studies. So just to, to pull into the home stretch here, the, there are serious consequences of agitation in Alzheimer's dementia, including greater functional impairment, worse quality of life, earlier institutionalization, significantly higher caregiver burden, deteriorating relationships with carers, increased economic costs of, of 10,000 a year or more in direct costs, shorter time to severe dementia, and accelerated mortality. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast episode on agitation in Alzheimer's dementia. What's at stake? To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.